Jesus, as always, we come to this um, written word looking to know you. Looking to see you, um, to um, recognize your work in us. To look forward to what you will do. To know your spirit, to know your truth. Lord, we ask that in our time of reflection today on your word, um, that your word uh, inspired and handed down to us over the generations um, stands above all other authorities. May we see who you are, who you have called us to be, Lord, may truth reign over all of what we are. We ask that you would truly teach us to be your church, to be Christians in a more full way today. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, we're getting ready to wrap up this series um, on 1 Corinthians and um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up uh, we're gonna wrap up next week. But Paul is going to in chapter 15 take us uh, down to um, the base layer, to the absolute um, unvarnished, unfinished, untreated, raw base of what it means to be a Christian. And so I want to I want to get right into it. I want to start with chapter 15 and verse 1. Cuz Paul has spent 14 chapters talking to a church that is a mess about all the questions that they have asked about what it means to be the church. But now in chapter 15 he says, "I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you of the good news um, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, or you, you believed empty, unless your belief was empty. That's what vain means. I delivered to you as of first importance the very most primary thing, what I also received. In other words, what was preached to me. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is one indispensable mystery at the core of Christian faith. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I have talked about this for years. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes no human logical sense. People do not come back from the dead. Zombie movies notwithstanding, people do not come back from the dead. This is our human experience. This is how things are. It's what we expect. If somebody does come back from the dead, normally it means they weren't really dead. He's not truly dead. He's only mostly dead. Um, There is is this sense in which death is permanent. And for the Greeks in Corinth, this was very, very true. In the Greek worldview, when you died, you went to Hades, the place of the dead, and you became a dead thing, a shadow of who you were. Um, there There was no hope of heaven. There was no hope of a a, a coming Messiah who would lead captivity captive, who would raise the dead. Um, In the Greek world, when you died, you were dead. And that was all there was to it. Now, the Greek philosophers debated over what that meant. Um, If you were a Platonist, you believed that when you died, you actually realized full reality. If you were an Epicurean, uh, you said, yeah, you might as well live this life to the fullest and experience everything you can because the only thing that matters is your experience and what you feel and how you do it. If you were a Stoic, you shrugged your shoulders and went, you guys are all losers, we're better than you. I mean, that was... That was how Greek philosophy worked. The Pythagoreans were trying to figure out the right angles required for... They're just all these philosophies, but the... Some of you are, some of you got that joke. Some of you didn't take algebra. Um, but the, um, but this, the whole, um, the whole thing in the Greek world was you die, you're dead. The difference between a human being and a god in the Greek world was that gods didn't die. They could be killed, but they didn't die. You say that didn't make any sense. Don't try to make sense of it it's the greeks all right um but there was there was this mentality and so in paul's ministry into corinth as he was ministering and even when he's ministering in athens in the book of acts he preaches to them um the greek word is anastasis all right the the resurrection to stand up again and the the greeks in athens don't athens don't understand they think it's the name of a goddess they, they, they don't understand this idea of resurrection. It doesn't make any sense to them. 
So with Paul removed from the Corinthian church, although he spent a little bit of time teaching there, there are a lot of people in this church, according uh, to what he says in verse 12, there were people in this church who were saying, well, there can't really be a resurrection of the dead. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit our philosophy. There has to be a better explanation. There has to be a better way to understand this. And maybe what's super important is that you live a good Christian life here and now. Um, What's really important about being a Christian um, is emulating in some way the lifestyle of Jesus and maybe even the lifestyle of Paul and Apollos and uh, Kepha, uh, Simon Peter, um, Kephas is just the, uh, Kepha is the Aramaic version of Peter. Peter means rock. Kepha means rock. It's not Cephas, it's Kephas. Uh, people always get, I always, people are like, that's a C and an E. I before E, except after C, or when it says A is a neighboring way, or weekends and holidays and all through May, and you'll never be right, no matter what you say. Um, the, the, uh, the, it, it's actually a K sound, Kephas. But anyway, um, so Paul is dealing with this group who are saying what's really important as a Christian um, is, is getting the lifestyle right. Getting the, the way right. Uh, we can't really know about resurrections and those kind of things. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Let, let's, let's just... And you know what, there's, there's something to be said for living a good and moral life, but that's not what a Christ, being a Christian is about. There, there's something to be said about being an ethical, honest person, but that's not what being a Christian is about. Paul starts to dig down into the indispensable mystery of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first thing that he points out, and and he does this, um, verses 1 through 11, as he lists all of the people who saw the resurrected Christ. Why does he do that? Why is it so important to him that he tell the Corinthian believers everybody who saw the resurrected Jesus? In fact, he points out when he's talking about it, he says, this is the most important thing. Jesus Christ, verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. But then he start, goes down and lists all of the people who saw him who were alive. Saw him alive after he was dead, after he was buried, Why does Paul do this? It is because the resurrection of the Jesus Christ is impossible to prove by human means. You can't come up with a scientific explanation of resurrection. You can come up with scientific explanations of things that look like resurrection. Well, he just fell asleep. That was my personal favorite when I was growing up. Um, We had to answer, you know, uh, critiques and one of the 19th century uh, members of what, we, what my dad used to call the dead German society, um, German theologians from the 19th century came up with this idea that Jesus didn't really die. What happened was he fainted on the cross and when they buried him, they put him in the tomb because the tomb was cool and refreshing It eventually woke him up. Now I sleep pretty soundly. I have a feeling being stabbed in the side would probably wake me up. Um, I have a feeling that, that 
that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But why sometimes the most ludicrous, illogical ideas are presented as explanations for things that don't fit into our human experience. So Paul goes through and he says, I understand this is hard for you to understand. I understand that the resurrection of Jesus is a difficult concept. That's why we have testimony of people who saw him alive. That, by the way, is the function of the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John actually says that he bears witness of this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He, he, they, all three of them articulate Jesus was a real human being. He was born of a woman. He lived. He ministered. He was arrested. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. We all saw it. And then he was raised again, and we all saw it. That's the purpose of the Gospels. Um, the, they present to us eyewitness accounts for eyewitness accounts of the death, burial, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You realize that that is more extant information, more eyewitness evidence than we have for any person before the invention of the television. Four independent eyewitness accounts. You say, now that's a little bit of an exaggeration. How many of you believe Julius Caesar lived? How many of you believe that Julius Caesar was murdered on the Ides of March, 44 B.C.? You're like, I don't know the date, but I know he got stabbed. Et tu brute. You know how many eyewitness accounts we have of the death of Julius Caesar? Zero. Do you know how many eyewitness accounts we have that John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln, actually saw him shoot Abraham Lincoln? George Washington had wooden teeth. Right? Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. George Washington had wooden teeth. Chase Moby Dick. That's Captain Ahab, dude. All right. How many of you have ever seen that movie, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? Oh, it's so historically inaccurate. It's amazing. I'll finish the quote just because. He's like, had wooden teeth. Chase Moby Dick. He's like, that's Captain Ahab, dude. Wait, remember in the Hall of Presidents? Yeah, yeah. What did he say? Welcome to the Hall of Presidents. Keanu Reeves when he was very young before John Wick, pre-John Wick. Uh, anyway, um, we, we don't, by the way, George Washington, how many of you read George Washington cut down a cherry tree when he was a little kid with a hatchet, right? Never happened. Never happened. Uh, George Washington had wooden teeth. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, um, Christopher Columbus. Why did Christopher Columbus sail in 1492? To see the ocean blue. That's right. People are like, well, Christopher Columbus sailed to prove the world was round. No, he didn't. That was invented by Washington Irving in the 1820s. Everybody knew the world was round. Christopher Columbus is really bad at math, and he thought it was smaller than it really was. True story. We, we rely on historical narratives, and we say, well, this is historical. We know that it's true because history could never, ever be corrupted. But here are four eyewitness accounts, by the way, four witness eye accounts, uh, eyewitness accounts that were being circulated 
within a lifetime of Jesus. These are not invented two centuries later to tell a story. They're not mythology. These are eyewitness accounts. We have fragments of them from within a lifespan of the death of Jesus. And Paul makes the point because everybody knows these guys are still alive. We would make the point, here's eyewitness accounts. And eyewitness accounts of some of a absurd notion, the resurrection of Jesus, that people were willing to die for. I want you to think about that for a second. People say, well, anybody could invent a story. The disciples could have taken his body um, and then substituted a lookalike. That's another one of my favorite stories. I was like, well, Jesus just had, they had somebody that looked like Jesus who was crucified. I'm like, hmm. I'm like, do you really think ancient people were stupid? Like, like I know they all look the same on the flannel graphs, but in real life, human beings look different. All right? Um, and, and they're like, well, Jesus got something. You realize that 11 or 10 of the 12, original 12 apostles were martyred. They were killed for this. That's either the, the best con men in the history of the world that were not willing to admit they were doing something even when they were going to be executed or there was truth to what they testified. And, and decades later, the Apostle John is still testifying of it. Um, near 100 AD, um, boiled in oil, uh, he was, and yet still alive, which missed and made his complexion interesting. Um, imprisoned in Patmos, all of these things, and yet persevering and presenting. And we have records of these men's students who died for the faith. So Paul makes the point, yes, it is hard to accept. It is hard to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. And yet here is the eyewitness account. Here is the reality. Here is the truth. And even if we don't understand it, in verses 12 through 34, even if it's hard to grasp um, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, um, how can some of you, in verse, verse 12, uh, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? How can you honestly, he writes to this Corinthian church, how can leaders honestly be questioning the resurrection of the dead when we know just a, a decade ago, Jesus was raised from the dead? How can we walk around and say it can't happen? That all that matters in, in, uh, in verse 19, Uh, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Um, The the Greek term there is actually um, the way that you would treat somebody who is so handicapped that they are incapable of interacting with the world. Um, And in the Greek culture, what you did was you neglected that person until they died. The Greeks were barbarians when it came to this kind of thing. The Greco-Roman world, um, uh, if you were born a girl and they were looking for a boy, they had no problem just leaving you on the stoop for the wolves. Um, That was their culture. That was the way they were. Uh, and, And if somebody was born severely handicapped, they would just leave them in a dark corner of the house to die, to starve to death. That sounds horrible and cruel because it is horrible and cruel. By the way, That culture is what Christianity saved us from as a Western world. When everybody freaks out about Christianity and the separation of church and state and all that stuff, just remember that without Christianity, we're a bunch of barbarians. 
Christianity is what gives us the reverence for life that defines our society. There's a really interesting book about that called The Book That Made Your World, if you ever want to read that written by an Indian Christian uh, comparing Christianity to Hinduism and and the other religions of of India. It's necessary. The resurrection is necessary for Christianity. This is what Paul's point is in verses 12 through 34. Paul makes the point that without the resurrection of Jesus, what are we doing? What are we hoping to accomplish? I mean, if if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Paul is absolutely right. We should be pitied. In fact, we should be left in the darkness because we're idiots. I know that's a cruel word, but it's true. If there is no resurrection for the dead, then what is the point of this thing? I, I, uh, I had a rough week. I have these kind of weeks. I have these kind of days when I just go through and I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm not doing anything. Um, I, I, I sit and wait for the, the next bad thing to come. I think we all experience that from time to time. Some of us are much better at dealing with it. Um, being a... a uh, an introvert and a, um, you know, we joke around about there's people that say the glass is half full. There are people that say that the glass is half empty. I'm one of the people that says the glass is poisoned. doesn't matter. I tend to be very cynical. I tend to be, uh, I always, you know, plan, hope for the best, plan for the worst kind of a situation. That's kind of a person I am. But when you're like that, you get in these moments where you sit there and you go, is this really worth it? What am I doing here? Why am I fighting? Why am I pouring my life into this? There's a series of disappointments that, that lead to that. Um, you guys know, without getting into too much, you guys know one of my, one of my great desires uh, after I finished my doctorate was to be able to find a place where I could teach online as an adjunct or something, be able to bring some money in, relieve some of the financial burden that I feel I put on the church and because I'm paid here and I don't do anything else for a living um, so that the church would have some flexibility, be able to pour in a mission, pour into bringing in an assistant pastor because I am almost 50 um, you know, looking at those kind of questions and, and not being able to find that and, and some other things, you know, um, and, and it sounds really silly, but all you dads there, when my daughter drove me to the airport, dropped me off, didn't cry, but I did. And then she left and drove off in the car. It was, it was a real moment, you know, and you sit there and go, is this working? Is she, is she going to you know, is she going to become the woman that we believe that God has intended her to be? I mean, what, what if she's, she's there by herself? She's got a car. What happened? You know, you know how it is as a parent. If you don't worry about your kid as a parent, you know, um, you're, I don't know, whatever. When I get like that, when I get as low as I possibly can, when, when just, I, I look at myself and see that I'm, First of all, being ridiculous, but but secondly, being honest with how I feel. Where do you go? 
If there is no resurrection from the dead, what we're doing is meaningless. However, if Jesus was truly raised from the dead, if it is true what the eyewitnesses presented, if it is true what the scripture says and the Holy Spirit, not to be all mystical and stuff, confirms in my heart, and the Bible says that he bears witness to what is true, if it is true, then what we are doing as Christians and as the church is the most important thing we can do in our lives. Being a Christian parent, being a a disciplined Christian, being a, a Christian spouse, serving one another, ministering, loving one another, um, being willing to stand for truth, it is the most important thing we can do in our lives. Because, verse 35, some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from its, its stars and glory. And he's looking out at creation. Paul is looking at creation and he's saying, look, he's like, you're sitting there going, how does the resurrection work? It doesn't make any logical sense. And he's saying, but if Jesus was raised from the dead, then there is something more than the physical. There is something more than what we uh, we think we have listed as the totality, the empirical evidence. There is something more to who we are, and there's more to life than just the thing that we see. He equates it to just a seed. This, by the way, he borrows from Jesus. Jesus says, how can a seed grow unless it first fall to the ground and die? He's, and and. Paul starts getting in, he says, look, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, he's talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, us. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul says, if there is a resurrection of the dead, it's the only thing that makes sense. There must be more than this. Look around the world and ask yourself if there must not be more than what we see. 
We look around the world, and while there is goodness in the world, there is evil and darkness in the world. We look around the world and we say, for every wonderful and splendid and beautiful thing, there is a dark corner of the world. And we're shielded from so much of it, but it is there. There must be more. Paul says, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then there is more. There is a reality in him, the ultimate reality, the true reality, the intended reality in Christ. What sin has broken into a shattered million pieces, Jesus repairs. And if that is true, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, verse 50, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If there is a resurrection then the work of Jesus is unstoppable. And the concerns and the worries of our world, while they are real and they are tangible and they are often difficult and we don't always see a way out, we don't always see an escape, but the reality is if the re- there is a resurrection from the dead, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then we have a responsibility as those who follow Him to be steadfast and immovable and always at work. Because what we're doing is not empty. It is not to be pitied. It is not just, and I'm sorry if this offends, it is not religion. Religion is a lie. Religion says you can be good enough. Religion says you can earn it. Religion says, you know what, you know what, you, you just follow the rules. Here's a set of rules and a bag of tools. You get to work and the gods will bless you. Religion is a lie. The resurrection of Jesus is the truth. And the truth is, if Jesus can conquer death, he is unstoppable. He is not the irresistible object meets the immovable, or the irresistible force meets the immovable object. It is not a world of duality where Satan and Jesus are pretty evenly matched and they are fighting over the destiny of creation. Jesus is already triumphant in his, in his resurrection. And you, as a follower of Christ, have no right 
I, as a follower of Christ, have no right to denigrate or demote or lower the power of the resurrected Christ because I don't feel like it. I am so sick and tired of listening to myself whine and whinge and complain about things not going my way. You say, I've never heard you do that. I don't do it in front of you. We have to return to this reality. If he's not raised, we are to be pitied. If he is raised, he is unstoppable. I wish Christians would get a hold of that reality. Because it is so much easier to face all the difficulties of this life when you know, no matter what happens, no matter how dark it goes, He is raised and I will be raised with Him. What I am may perish and die, but He will raise me into imperishable and immortality. You say, that's crazy talk. I'm fully aware. That's why it's called faith. That's why it's called faith. Do you believe or you not believe? And if you do believe, how willing are you to let all the extraneous and extra things of experience and religion and life pass away so that he might be glorified in you. That the resurrected one might be your source for your identity, power, motivation, and life. I can weep all I want over this failing world. But in the end, I'm not a servant of this world. Hopefully and prayerfully as a believer, I am following him. You want to fix all the problems in the Corinthian church? Get a hold of the resurrected Jesus. You want to make difficult decisions? Be submitted to the resurrected Jesus. You want to deal with all the physical ailments and illnesses and struggles and difficulties? You say, well, I came to Jesus hoping he would heal me and make me rich. Not going to happen. But he has called us to his work. We choose. We choose as believers to be motivated by our own feeling of this world, our present emotions of this world, or by the resurrected Lord. And if you're not a follower of Christ today and you're here and you're listening to this, um, on the back of the bulletin is a, is a brief write-up of, of why we believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. And I hope and pray that you'll take a look at that and consider it as truth. I have nothing if Jesus is not raised. This is nothing if Jesus is not raised. But if he is, then it is everything. Would you join me in a word of prayer?
resurrected one, there is nothing left to say. You are life, truth, and the way. And so we give ourselves to you as Christians, as your disciples, believing what we cannot see, trusting what we cannot know for certain, going because you call us. Jesus, we are here for you. Only you. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to have lunch in a little bit. You're welcome to fellowship. Head downstairs when you feel like it and find a seat. Um, And uh, go forward and be the church of Jesus Christ.